1: I'm Jody Vance on this Wednesday, August the 12th, and we're diving right into the very busy program we've got lined up for the next three hours with parents and teachers feeling the anxiety that comes with back to school in a pandemic. Education Minister Rob Fleming announced yesterday that the September 8th start date will be pushed to give teachers time to prepare. Have a listen.
0: Having uh, uh, the restart week uh, staged in, in, in some kind of manner uh, that uh, would have uh, staff teams together uh, for a couple of days before we uh, gradually welcome kids back is a good idea. We fully anticipated that there would be some uh, shifts and adjustments as we go. I think that's the wise uh, course of, of, of action as we proceed. So this is one of the areas where we've uh, we've looked at that closely.
1: Again, that's Education Minister Rob Fleming uh, speaking to reporters yesterday to talk through the reaction today to this news, that later start date, the next steps. We're very happy to connect with BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Jody. Let's start with the reaction to that announcement. Did you know in advance? Well, we've
2: been advocating for, um, you know, a couple days at uh, for teachers and school staff to get together to receive the really important health and safety training that is going to be necessary to keep everyone safe uh, moving into the school year. Uh, things are going to be really different in September than they were in June when we saw the return of between 35 and 40 percent of our students. It's going to be uh, a larger return, obviously, full return uh, in September. And so it's important that school staff have the opportunity to get together to receive the training. Um, there's going to be a lot of additional uh, health and safety protocols and procedures that will need to be in place. Um, Both teachers and support staff will be responsible for ensuring that uh, students are well aware of what they are, uh, both in classrooms and in school hallways and, you know, outside. So there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, And so it's, it's good news to hear that there'll be some time for that training to happen before students come to school.
1: Were you aware that there was some wiggle room here, that the push back of the date was going to be announced yesterday?
2: Well, the, this has been an ongoing conversation,
1: okay, good. Um,
2: you know, with with the ministry, um, at the work groups, at the restart committee, or I mean, uh, the steering committee, I should say. And yeah. so this has been, you know, an ongoing conversation since we, um, you know, uh, made the everyone aware of the fact that we were uh, looking for this.
1: Right, which was after the initial announcement of full back to school September 8th. You were very quick uh, uh, on behalf of the BC Teachers Federation stepping to the front and saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't actually work for teachers. Some might assume that teachers go back to school a couple of weeks before kids return to school. uh, But that's not the case. Teachers aren't paid to go back mid-August for a September 8th start date. So you're looking for an opportunity, if I'm hearing you right, to gather Teachers together to get the health and safety training that's needed in order to inform and then pass along that training to students to be at the lowest possible risk when uh, a full in class return does take place.
2: That's right, Jody, but it'll be teachers, support staff, administrators, you know, the entire. School teams need to be together um, to receive the training to be able to make decisions that are school based. So, you know, there'll be some unique uh, circumstances in the various schools, um, and there'll be, uh, you know, sort of customized, if you will, um, protocols that will need, will be you know, slightly different, some of them, from school to school. And so it's really important that the entire school staff is able to gather, um, get the training, uh, you know, make sure it's clearly understood, make some decisions about some of the protocols that will need to be in place as well. Um, and there won't be an opportunity for everyone to do that um, prior to the start of the school year.
1: No, I think that collaboration in each school setting piece is big, because n- n- none of us have ever gone back to school in a pandemic full full, full uh, classes.
2: Well, that's just it. Um, you know, it was very different in June, and so this is new to everyone, and we need to make sure that we get it right. No one's, you know, looking for a long delay here. But it is important that the health and safety protocols and procedures are in place, that teachers and support staff are all well-trained, and that, you know, we're able to uh, be really ready and confident when students return.
1: Let's talk a little bit about class sizes. This is something you and I have spoken about over the years outside of a pandemic. Class sizes have been large, to say the least, and and certainly too big uh, historically to have six feet or the two meters distancing between desks. How big of an issue is that headed back?
2: It's a significant issue. You know, we have schools that are, are overcrowded. We have large classrooms that, you know, the average class size for grades 4 to 12 is 30. And we have lots and lots of classrooms that are at least at 30 or, you know, in some cases more than 30. And so uh, we've heard, you know, time and time again, the importance of physical distancing uh, in terms of protecting everyone. And so we're really going to need to take a look at those class sizes. Um, we're going to need to look at additional spaces that might be available um, in order to reduce them. Because, you know, this, it doesn't really matter how, how you rearrange either tables or desks in classrooms. Um, you're still not going to be able to physically distance 30 or more students. And a lot of classrooms, you know, today, we don't sit in straight rows um, with students all facing the same way with a teacher at the front of the room. That's just not how classrooms work anymore. Lots of classrooms have tables and and different, you know, sorts of arrangements. And and for younger students, you know, there often isn't even desks or, or, you know, maybe there's a round table or something. And so, you know, a lot of classrooms are play-based. So there needs to be a smaller number of students per class. And so that's, you know, the topic of conversation right now as well
1: we're with bctf president terry mooring talking through back to school i mean it is august 12th which feels like a long way from back to school and yet it's a heartbeat away so talking about school spaces and how spaces might be utilized there's a lot of sort of buzz surrounding especially in in metro vancouver and and in in southwestern british columbia i guess where our um our weather lends itself to maybe having outdoor classrooms for uh, at least a couple of months, uh, utilizing outdoor spaces at schools. Is that a possibility? Because we see, we're going to have Annie Ohana join us in the next half hour. She is a, a an educator in Surrey and talks about how many portables there are. There's no physical distancing in a portable.
2: Absolutely. We, we've got a lot of challenges um, and, you know, class size, Certainly takes on a different dimension when you're talking about a pandemic. And so, you know, there's a lot of measures that need to be put into place. I anticipate that, you know, a lot of teachers will be taking students outside more. However, that's not, you know, a consistent or dependable method of uh, keeping everyone safe. Um, yeah. There are outdoor classrooms, and they're highly specialized in some of our schools where we have teachers that are specialist in terms of outdoor education. And, you know, students primarily spend a lot of, of their time uh, outdoors um, to receive their education. That's not realistic for, you know, uh, 600,000 students. And so we really need to look at measures that, you know, are practical, um, that we know will keep everyone safe. And one of them is ensuring that there's physical distancing in our schools.
1: I'm Jody Vanson for Mike This Week, and we continue our chat with the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring, is on the line after the big news of yesterday with BC Education Minister, Rob Fleming, announcing that there will be extra time for for teachers and school administrators and support staff to gather, uh, get training, figure out protocols, set up classrooms for the safest possible return for the safest back to school for our kids. And and Terry, I want to go back to June. When teachers left in June, what was the expectation of this uh, back to school? What was the phase three w- return to school? Was it explained to you at the BCTF back at the end of the last school year, as odd as that was?
2: Yeah, at the end of the last school year, you know, everything was still pretty in flux. And uh, what we knew at the time, though, were what the stages were, uh, and they were fairly clearly laid out. And so the um, surprise to us uh, was when the announcement was made and we got the information the day before that the stages had all changed. And so there was, you know, some significant changes to some of them and some more minor ones to others. But the most significant change was certainly to stage two. Uh, Originally, uh, stage two was designed to have a full return of kindergarten to grade seven students and then a partial return, actually 40 percent of uh, eight grade 8 to 12. And so when we, you know, found out and when teachers found out um, in July, at the end of July, that it was going to be 100% return, that really threw a curveball into the mix. And then the working group and the steering committee had to then work with, you know, that information um, in the planning process. Uh, Up until then, we all thought that it would be a partial return of secondary students.
1: Which is a very different landscape than what we're facing currently. Do you think a finalized plan will be ready by August 26th as previously announced?
2: Well, school districts need to have um, their plans in by then. So there, there should be, uh, you know, obviously uh, the documents are in the process of being released throughout the summer. And yeah. school districts will have all the information that they need. Um, you know, I know that the plan that school districts do send into government will need to be approved. And so sometimes that process takes some time. And then, you know, then it needs to be uh, clearly communicated both to teachers and, and parents. Um, you know, I know that families are waiting for this information just like everyone else. And just given the dynamics of the planning process, um, you know, the, the change of the announcement, it means that, you know, it will be the end of August before these plans are finalized. And uh, so it's, you know... We're going to be sitting for a while um, with some questions that don't have answers, and that's incredibly unfortunate, especially when we're in such an uncertain time to begin with. Um, but that's the situation that we're in, and so I know that we're all, you know, hoping that as you know, decisions are made and communicated along the way, so everyone understands the situation that we're in.
1: It's that pace, patience and flexibility piece. As a parent, you know, it makes my heart pound a little bit to not really know how this is going to look. I was already nervous about my uh, 12-year-old heading to high school. He's heading into grade eight. So to lob on top of that, um, what does a staggered start time look like? Uh, how will he be managed within that 120-person max uh, learning group? And and what happens if someone in that learning group um, is test positive for whatever reason, like there are so many pieces of that, that we just uh, have to collectively take a breath, take a pause, know that these are the issues that are on that steering committee's uh, table right now. That's kind of what I'm getting from you is that parents, while while we really want the answers, we can't have the answers until the plan is is in place, right?
2: Well, it's really important that those answers um, come um, you know, as quickly as I can, that all the details are addressed and all the concerns are addressed. You know, the details are what people are really needing and wanting to know. Um, yeah. and, and that's absolutely understandable. You know, we're in a pandemic. It's, it's very uncertain. Um, and schools do provide us a level of certainty. And so, you know, when we don't have that certainty, it, it makes us all uncomfortable. And so, you know, it is important that that work be done, be done carefully and thoughtfully, and then clearly communicated. Um, it's important that the work of those uh, working groups and the steering committee inform government decision making moving forward. And I know that there's, those conversations are happening right now, uh, and that work is underway. So it is, it is uh, an uncertain time. You know, we're all ans- waiting for those uh, details, and um, you know they'll be forthcoming. I know, um, but I know that they also can't come soon enough because mm-hmm. we all need to do that long-term planning.
1: I was listening to Mornings with Simi and uh, there was some polling done by Insights West and it was, the, the numbers were like hitting me. It, it's almost, it's impossible to make everybody happy in this scenario is what those numbers said. It's like 50-50 polling. Uh, like 50, 49% of the polled were in favour of... Uh, remote? No, sorry. Twenty-seven percent were in favor of remote-only schooling. Twenty-seven percent were all in class, and forty-two percent wanted a mix of both. Are teachers preparing for that third option, that flexible mix of both, in the event that a second wave comes? Or where are we with that?
2: Well, we knew we knew going into um, the summer that planning would have to be done for different uh, stages. And, you know, I know at that time I I anticipated that we'd be going through some different stages, not knowing what stage the government would announce, of course, for September. Um, And so we have to be uh, ready for that as well. And, you know, I know we've been also encouraging that the steering committee continue to meet throughout um, at least the fall, if not further into the school year, um, to be able to address some of the issues that come up. None of us, you know, uh, all of us hope that there isn't a second wave and um, but we also need to be prepared for that and so we need to ensure that you know what happened in June doesn't reoccur that was uh, unsustainable, but there is a way certainly to combine the remote learning with the in-class learning in a sustainable way. It just needs to be uh, carefully planned. And in uh, the spring, we didn't have that opportunity for that careful planning because right. it was an emergency situation. Uh, we're not in an emergency situation anymore, but we st- we're still in a you know a really serious situation, obviously. And But we do have the opportunity to do some of that careful planning, and so that's what needs to happen.
1: I'm Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Now, prior to the announcement by Education Minister Rob Fleming yesterday that the September 8th return to school date would be pushed to give teachers and admin staff uh, time to get their proper health training and planning, planning configurations of classrooms, no less, to help keep kids as safe as possible when returning to school in a pandemic. Boy, can you believe it? It's stressful. It's stressful for everybody. One very passionate teacher advocate is joining us on the line. She also happens to be the department head for Surrey School District Number Thirty Nine. Annie O'Hana is with us. Hi, Annie. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm just an department head in my school, not the entire district. <laughs> right at your just, school. Yeah. Well, we'll just yeah. hand you the. We'll just hand you the whole uh, district. Um, <laughs> but you speak from such a place of knowing and passion and wanting to support teachers and really shine a light on what those issues are that you'd like to certainly see on the government's table when they're trying to figure out the safest possible way to get kids back to school and to protect teachers as well. Talk us through how you felt when you heard the announcement yesterday.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, And I have to say, I'm one of like 47,000, right? So you have an incredible amount of people uh, who have studied for many years, um, who, you know, everything is about their school and their students and their families. Uh, And so that passion comes from the reality of what we're facing. Uh, And we just want to make sure that our schools are places that kids can learn and grow in a safe environment. So when the announcement came out, I was very happy. Um, I think to be quite blunt, uh, that the pressure is working. Um, A lot of teachers just felt we weren't quite being listened to. And it goes to people like Terry Mooring and our entire EC, um, our Executive committee, I should say, uh, the steering committee and committees that are working on this, teachers who many of whom I know, uh, who are really going back to the government and saying, you need to take a closer look. Uh, you need to understand what the realities on the ground are. And so I think slowly, slowly, I just heard on you know, the uh, news that was just being played, uh, the idea of perhaps masks being mandatory in some areas. So bit by bit, I'm seeing more of what honestly is on-the-ground realities that need to be practiced. Yes, there's this perfect idea of what it could be, but we're certainly not in a perfect situation. So we have to make sure that we put the safety of our students and, of course, teachers first.
1: Right, you know, and, and the risk piece is there, as Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer has reiterated since day one of this pandemic and and, and, and likening it to the return to a small visitation at long-term care homes, mm-hmm. we were protecting our elders to the degree that we were isolating them, which was doing possibly more damage than the risk of one member of each family going in and actually having that contact. So yep. here we are doing the same with our precious children. Obviously, there's no way to send kids back to school without risk, even when there's not a pandemic, there's risk. Yep. Mm-hmm. So so here we are trying to mitigate and manage. What do you think for, for the Surrey uh, school district number 39, you and I have had these conversations, uh, mm-hmm. offline. And that's one of yeah. the reasons why I wanted to invite you here. You were DMing mm-hmm. me on Twitter and, and educating <laughs> me about what's going on. I mean, we, I've interviewed you in the past, I yeah. believe when you were winning awards and, and, <laughs> but I trust your voice in that you're very passionate about this. And when you bring up the issues such as the class size being a massive issue, because there are so many portables specifically in Surrey, how do you distance kids in a portable?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so every local, every district is different and and certainly there will be some uh districts and locals that have different answers. For Surrey, uh district 36, we're we're looking at so if my numbers are a bit off my apologies, but the 2019-2020 school year, uh there were at least like 361 portables. So and that is that, that is honestly like the size of some locals in our province. Uh, it's, it's impossible. I was talking to teachers. They were sending me pictures of, of the distancing they had done in June. And I think that's really important for parents and, and the public to understand that in June, we were looking at these realities. We were thinking ahead as, as children were coming back. We, most of us had changed the configuration of our classrooms already, uh, to make sure that at the time it was actually like no more than six or seven. And, and already that was the maximum. We noticed, right, that as we reshaped our uh, reshaped our rooms, we saw that okay, this is almost the max. Like, I got I have a pretty big room. I'm lucky to fit thirteen, fourteen, right? So right. in portables, it's so much smaller. And and I think I have to say that I understand that it is a delay. I, I get that you know that is the meaning of the word. But I would say that like any workplace, whether it's a construction site, like whatever you think about. Health and safety never delay the project. The workplace conditions make sure that you don't run into problems in the future. And from a teacher perspective, from a parent, I'm not a parent, but I think from other parents' perspective, the reality is that we don't want to be guinea pigs. We don't want the risk to be too much. So to me, proper training or the district, you know, that has the resources, the ministry that can provide those resources to get the training, to allow teachers the headspace to think about, if they're going to change the way we teach and even perhaps the subject, that takes time to learn, to, to implement well, to use best practices. The last thing we want is kids falling through the cracks, not just because they got sick, which is obviously the, the worst-case scenario, but mentally and, and feeling that school is not the place for them. Um, schools are meant to be places where kids should feel safe, should feel like they can, you know, grow and, and do so in a way that, you know, there at the center. Uh, and they're not just, you know, like, you know, we need you for daycare. Schools are not daycares. No, no. so, and so we really want to make sure that by providing the right planning, just like we did in March, uh, speaking for my school, we had quite a large list of, vul- of students made vulnerable, um, well over, I would say, 12 to 13 percent. And so the fact of food insecurity, home and you know, the realities of housing, the realities of losing a job, the realities of, you know, the technology, which shocked all of us because we really thought that most kids would be okay. And even though most had, you know, their, their smartphones or whatever, the reality was they didn't have enough devices to go around for their family. And so all these things came up. And if we don't deal with those things as well, because we are going to have to do that again, we can't do that as we're teaching. We
1: need time to do that properly. Indeed, and you know you there was a lot to unpack on what you just said. You're very mm. passionate about this annie and and I really appreciate you articulating it in in, in such a an, an open and empathetic way. Um, the survey that was done by the provincial health office mm. very much plays into why it is all kids full-on, back in class, full-time at all yep. levels. Yep. After looking at that survey and realizing and recognizing, I watch every briefing and read every mm-hmm. release from Dr. Bonnie Henry and and our uh, BC Health Minister, Adrian Dix, and the unintended negative impacts of kids not being in school outweighs the risk because our numbers have been so incredibly low yep. in community spread. So those are two really important pieces of this puzzle, the unintended negative consequences that kids face as you just mentioned food insecurity maybe an abusive yeah. home situation yeah. not, not access to the technologies to do online learning which some are really saying I want to just do online learning with my child make that an option for me and yeah. and perhaps leading into the fall and winter months depending on how things evolve in shape we have to be we have to be patient and prepared to be flexible in those ways and that's where I want to go next with you mm-hmm. how much is being put into outside of the configuration of your classroom and what the class size and even the composition of your class might be. But what are you feeling about doing a hybrid model? What does that look like from your perspective?
3: So as teachers, we've been talking about this since March um, because, really, we didn't know, right? And yeah. and so, going into, like, from April, after spring break until June, we were practicing, you know, that, that like, as Terry Mooring said, um, that emergency remote learning, uh, which was far from perfect, and that's exactly what triage tends to be, right? Uh, it's not the full-on medical care, it's the it's bare minimum to keep you alive. And so, we know that we're not in that situation now, and in fact, we don't need to be. Um, I think that all cards are on the table, like all options are there. Um, I think hybrid model could be done better than what, you know, occurred, you know, April to June. And um, should we find ourselves back in a situation where COVID is starting to spread wider and wider? Um, I know that as teachers, we have learned many lessons. And with our admin, with our districts, we can absolutely plan for a way that we can have in school instruction, but also perhaps some Uh, online learning should that be needed. And I would say that we shouldn't, we have to realize that if physically we cannot fit 100% of the students in our school, if that's going to lead us to COVID cases, then perhaps we need to consider, you know, the best practices that we can do in a hybrid model. I think it is possible. Teachers have learned immensely in the last five months and I know we can do better. And I think it's, I'm going to put a plea out there. Just as a, a resident of BC, as a citizen, we're, the cases are going up again, and to be honest, when you hear things of you know parties and things that are breaking the rules, and I hear you know in Doctor you know Bonnie Henry's voice of how concerned she is. I, it's, it's it's very much a call to please keep in mind the students, the families. A second wave would be horrific economically. A second wave would not be great in terms of having to have everything shut down, including kids not being able to go to school. Yes, there'd be online learning, but for the parents, right, in terms of what they need to do. So I think that personal responsibility in all of us, like as a teacher, I've been staying home because I know that I have to walk into a school and, and, and mm-hmm. work with people. And, and so I just, I, I, really am concerned and a lot of teachers are because unfortunately the numbers are starting to rise up again and that, and we need to take that seriously. Um, I, I do not want one single student um, to fall prey to, you know, a wrong decision or, or a breaking of a rule that, you know, we, we should be able to try to keep. So for those thinking about what to do on the long weekends and and you know maybe it's not as bad. Um, you know, as I see these cases in different places, it, it does still raise concern. So long I story like that, short, yeah. yeah. Long yeah. story short, we're definitely planning for all cases. And I think where some of the pushback uh, and this is what I was DMing you was just that, and it is changing. So I'm very happy for that. That the initial plan didn't seem to take into consideration. Uh, the physical limitations which is not the problem of just one government this is a 20 you know this is a 20 year problem of having our schools not funded properly and now we really see see you know the monster raise its ugly head that we have a crisis a global crisis where all we need is more teachers more classrooms and we don't have it so that's
1: kind of like the long picture Got to leave it there with you, Annie O'Hanna. No it's always a pleasure to chat with <laughs> you. you. Very, very much. passionate in your advocacy for teachers, a passionate teacher in your own right, and we appreciate your time. Thank you, Annie, for that. Thank you very much, as always, Jody.
0: Having uh, uh, the restart week uh, staged in, in, in some kind of manner uh, that uh, would have uh, staff teams together uh, for a couple days before we uh, gradually welcome kids back is a good idea. We fully anticipated that there would be some uh, shifts and adjustments as we go i think that's the wise uh, course of, of of action as we proceed so this is one of the areas where we've uh, we've looked at that closely
1: talking about the shift in the planning uh, back to school plans change is our hot topic first topic in fact with baldry's beat keith baldry global bc's legislative bureau chief is with us as always hi keith good morning Jody. Good to chat with you. I had an interesting conversation with Terry Mooring of the BCTF Mm -hmm. off the top of the show here. She sounds like she's very pleased with the plan to push back the start of school a little bit and give teachers and mid-staff and support staff a chance to sort of get up to speed on health and safety here.
4: Yeah, it's going to be, we're not talking a long time in terms of a delay. It's just literally a couple of days. Uh, So instead of the, the Tuesday after Labor Day, I think we're probably talking Thursday. And maybe not all the all the grades come back at the same time. Um, you know, the start of school, as you know, Jody, being the mother of a 12-year-old, uh, what,
1: 14 12, year, old? Yeah. 12, 12 year
4: 12, old? Um, yeah. 12. You know, the first week of school is sort of a gong show anyways. Totally. Um, people are, totally. Mo- kids are moving from class to class. They're, they're, they're changing teachers. Home rooms, this sort of thing. So uh, you're not going to. There's no normalcy anyway. So the first week's a bit of a write-off. So why not uh, just delay a few days? Uh, but again, I don't think we're 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 not talking into the, the the next week. We're talking later in the in the week that was planned to restart. So instead of September 8th, I expect it's going to be September 10th, uh, maybe the 11th, but uh, likely the Thursday. And again, perhaps not everyone in all at once. But I think the the goal here is uh, Minister Fleming just. Sort of mentioned, allow the staff and the teachers to sort of get a, a sense of what they 're going into uh, without the kids around. Like, go in to the classrooms with your, on your own. Uh, with only staff present for a couple days uh, before the kids come in and to get a sense of how the classrooms are going to operate, what they're going to look like, how the sanitation procedures are going to work, uh, how the staggered starts are going to work, and the drop-offs and this type of thing. It's, uh, it's a whole new world. Um, but it's, uh, Schools are going to open, but again, just a couple days delay.
1: Yeah. It's how to figure out that physical distance within each classroom configuration. Mm-hmm. As many people are talking about, you know, you go into most classrooms now and they're not the literal, pardon the pun, but old school way of just being bare walled, a chalkboard and a bunch of desks in rows mm-hmm. facing forward. They're much more homey. They're, they're play orientated. There might be shelving that's been put in. Oftentimes the teachers have set up their rooms with their own things. And if, if you need to put, Kids two meters apart. All of a sudden, you got to take a bunch of stuff out of there as well.
4: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I'll. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I live across the street from an elementary school uh, in Victoria, yeah. and I've been watching daily. Is uh, there's a fair amount of work going on in there in terms of what appears to be some physical, um, some changes to the phys- physical layout. I mean, I've seen people, staff carrying in, you know, boards. Uh, they're working. they seem to be doing some sort of construction of sorts, which I think is all about uh, changing the physical configurations of classrooms. Uh, Hallways are going to look different. Um, So there's significant changes afoot in our school system in terms of the physical configuration of them to enable as maximum as possible the physical distancing of kids and staff.
1: And what you've been saying since day one of covering COVID-19 in British Columbia is the fact that most BC schools have remained open throughout this, as mm-hmm. as you do. I live across the street from an elementary school, and the frontline healthcare workers' daycare is literally kitty-corner from my house. And there have been kids there, playing there, being there 24-7 weekdays, and... You know, no issues. So yeah. while we want, while the anxieties are high and understandably so, as you said, I'm a parent, I'm living that. But we also have to put our trust in the fact that our community spread is as low it, as it is, and and let's get to that
4: yeah, uh, when no, it comes it, to our
1: COVID numbers.
4: It's funny. I'm looking at my front window at, at the uh, the childcare um, part of the school that faces my uh, house. There's about a dozen kids. And they are there's a sanitation station I'm watching right now There's a kid who's being required to go through a sanitation station. He's had to wash his hands as the instructor who's masked is uh is performing this attached to ensuring there's there's sanitation and it's uh It's interesting to watch this on a daily basis now. This never occurred before, but these kids now line up uh they wash their hands constantly um, mm-hmm. and are uh, required to uh, sort of hand sanitize. Uh, And that's what they're doing literally as we speak on the air right now. These kids are going through uh, sanitation protocols.
1: That's wild. And (laughs) I'm hearing out my window that you can barely hear audible as I sit in my son's uh, bedroom doing the work from home studio. And uh, it's a stay in the zone. You got to stay inside your zone because they've they've got a certain number of kids playing in, in each area. And that's your zone. And nobody crosses over. And. But they still look like they're having a hell of a good time. So that's a good,
4: yeah, a good, kids, good thing. Kids will adapt. Kids, kids will adapt. Uh, and they, and that's, that's what kids do. And I think they're going to adapt once in the, in the, in the, school starts. But there is apprehension. I see it all the time on Twitter and social media from teachers particularly worried about what's going to happen here. But uh, I think you just sort of have to take a plunge for the at least to ch- check it out, kick the tires for the first uh, week or so, and see how schools look. And I think uh, at the end of the day, I think things are going to be fine.
1: Patience and flexibility there. Actually, you know, if you're if you're wanting to talk to Keith about this, you're listening to what we're talking about with regard to back to school, you can line up on the phone board 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell because our next segment we're going to take your calls on Bal- Baldry's Beat. Uh, Premier John Horgan speaking today at one o'clock, just found out that Dr. Henry and, and is Minister Dix also going to be with with mm-hmm. uh, Premier Horgan at one. Uh, expectations for that?
4: I think there's going to be a big uh, um, emphasis on contact tracing. My understanding is the government's going to hire a lot more contact tracers. Uh, public health will employ a lot more people to contact trace. This is going to be a big push from uh, from public health to really sort of uh, strangle the virus before it gets out of control. Right now we've got more than 1,800 people in self-isolation. As a result of contact tracing uh, a lot of people don't know that already several hundred people are employed by the government to contact trace But these people are they're employed anyways as nurses as public health officials as um, various healthcare professions and they're seconded into contact tracing which means when someone tests positive for the virus they're identified and they're interviewed by contact tracers who are trained to ask very you know, um, deliberate questions, to track their movements, to find out who they've been in contact with for the last 14 days, uh, where, uh, and, and then to follow up with those people and find out who they've been in contact with. And it's this, this sort of this chain of, of uh, transmission that is trying to be identified by contact tracers. And that's why we've got so many people under self-isolation right now, largely from the events in Kelowna, uh, over Canada today, although that's now, we're sort of past The the incubation period there, but also a couple parties in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, that took place, where 400 people are, more than 400, probably 500 people now are in self isolation as a result of coming in contact with someone who has the virus. And uh, those efforts are going to be stepped up, and I think that's a that's a big announcement today by the government that um, contact tracing is going to become literally a cottage industry in this province, as so many people are going to be asked to to basically follow up every single person who tests positive for the virus is uh, is going to have this investigative team um, quizzing them. It's, almost, it's a detective story where they try yeah. to find this, this virus and, and stem it spread as quickly as possible. And now that we're at 40 cases a day when we were at 10 just a couple months ago, that's the reason I think we're seeing a big push for contact tracing that will be announced today.
1: Wasn't it, was it Monday where Dr. Henry mentioned of the numbers on that, uh, of the 47, I want to say, she said 42 of the 47 test positive cases were already in isolation thanks to contact tracing. Mm
4: -hmm. Yes, exactly. We are finding, so these new cases we're getting every day. Um, are identified a, a number of them are identified by contact tracers it 's not just people r- themselves reporting in sick and taking a test it 's contact tracers coming uh, coming a- upon these people who are already are feeling symptoms that, and they get tested as a result of contact tracing so we 're going to probably have a thousand people I bet at the end of the day in, uh, being used to be contact tracers, uh, and that 's going to be the you know the the new normal going forward, uh, because it's not just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing uh, exercise that's going to be with us for a long time.
2: Well, that's just it. Um, You know, it was very different in June, and so this is new to everyone, and we need to make sure that we get it right. No one's, you know, looking for a long delay here, but it is important that the health and safety protocols and procedures are in place, that teachers and support staff are all well-trained, and that, you know, we're able to uh, be really ready and confident when students return.
1: That is BCTF President Terry Mooring earlier here on the Mike Smith Show. I'm Jody Vance. It is Baldry's Beef. Uh, Keith Baldry and I uh, taking your calls now. 604-280-9898, star 9898. We can talk about back to school. We can talk about the news about contact tracing and how key that is going to be moving forward for us here in British Columbia. And really globally speaking, to keep this virus at bay, trying to bend that curve back down, and where we might be headed, Keith. That's certainly a big piece of this um, when we're looking at these numbers. As you mentioned, it wasn't that long ago that we were at eight or ten, and now we're at forty-seven or fifty-one. It's uh, it's a, a not unexpected sort of rise with opening up more, but certainly each briefing seems just a little more tense.
4: Yeah, I've noticed uh, Dr. Bunny Henry's been a little more you're right a little tense about what we're seeing right now uh, i think she'd be far more comfortable i mean when, when i remember a couple weeks ago she said 25 was beyond her comfort zone in terms of 25 cases a day well we're now 40 50 a day and so that's well beyond her comfort zone which is why i think you're going to see this big push for more contact tracing um announced today and um and again, the, the the imploring people not to gather in large social gatherings, particularly indoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's one thing to gather outdoors where the virus is not spread with any any effectiveness, but indoors it can spread very quickly. And that's why literally twenty people in a room right now is just not advisable.
1: Just don't do it, Susan and Burnaby. Welcome to the show. What's your question for Keith? I have a question and a comment. Question
5: is, so we're using all the hand sanitizer and soap and water, which is great. Uh, It kills the good bugs and the bad bugs. I have not heard anything in relation to using moisturizer as a barrier afterwards. My comment um, is with the schooling, thank heavens my kids aren't of school age, but I would not put my kids in school at least until three weeks after everybody else has gone back because really everybody, you know, this is a a new thing. And, you know, people are just going to be the guinea pigs, and unfortunately people are going to, you know, get sick. And I wish that people would wear masks. I've started going up to people in stores with my mask, of course, physically distanced, and thanking them for wearing their mask. And I'm hoping that people who don't wear masks hear that, and maybe it's a pause um, for them to get with the program.
4: Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Susan. Point by point, I don't know anything about the science of moisturizer. That's beyond my... Me neither my thing Uh, in terms of um, kids not going back right away I think she's probably correct a lot of people will keep their kids home I think for the first uh, little while to see how things are going to work in schools Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that'll be a majority at all but I think there'll be a significant amount of people who who do that and when it comes to mask wearing more and more people are wearing masks all the time I've noticed that uh, when I go into the few times I go into a store Uh, more and more people have masks on. I wear a mask when I go indoors, and I think when um, schools start, I think you will see over the course of the school year not a mandatory rule from Dr. Bonnie Henry, but I think just a a self-regulated rule from staff and kids where it will just become a thing that everybody wears a mask in schools. And you know how schools operate. It's all peer pressure and groupthink. And if if a majority of people are wearing masks, everybody's going to wear a mask, and I think that's what we're going to see in the school year.
1: All the cool kids are doing it, yeah, Keith. All the cool, Kira cool. Exactly. <laughs> Kira in Vancouver. We got like a minute here. What do you want to say? you got a question for Keith?
6: I think there needs to be more choice for parents and teachers here. You know, Toronto's district school board, largest uh, board in Canada, as I understand. They're phoning parents to see a, are you sending your kids to school or B, do you want to stick with remote learning? Edmonton, where my teacher's uh, sister is a teacher, Same thing, there's choice. They have remote learning. And I don't mean distributed learning here. For elementary students, I can't even find it online for my son. There's no elementary distributed learning. Let's have a connection here between the school for teachers who are at risk uh, and children who are at risk. We did that in in the spring. And I don't mean double duty for teachers doing classroom and online. I mean, there's going to be a cohort of parents who will not send their kids and there'll be a cohort of teachers who are unable to go for the same reasons, either their own health or their family members' health. We need choice here, and I think that's a big okay, thing. Okay, Kira, Kira,
1: not- I'm running out of time here. I want Keith to have 30 seconds to respond. Go, Keith. I, I
4: think there will be choice, but it will vary from district to district and school to school. There will be some online alternatives, my understanding is, uh, for for a number of students, not necessarily 100% of students, but districts are working to provide some alternatives and choices for parents and, and students. But it's going to vary from, from district to district.
1: And I think that there is that flexibility piece, that patience piece that comes into play. Even while sitting here doing this segment, I'm getting inundated with, uh, with emails and DMs. We're going to revisit this later on in the show. October uh, will always... look
4: different than September. I'll, there I'll you say. go. Right? Yep.
1: I mean, how, how can we possibly ask for definitive anything in a pandemic? I feel like exactly. 2020, we're six months in. It feels like I've been five years of this year and we're only six months <laughs> in. Point. Keith, Keith, as always, a pleasure. We'll do it all over again tomorrow. Thanks for this.
4: Talk to you tomorrow. Bye.
1: Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. And uh, this next discussion is around a survey that if, if currently, I know it's radio, so come along with me on a visual here, you know, on the emojis on your phone, the emojis. Imagine me right now with the top of my head blowing off, you know, that mind blown emoji that that's kind of the energy that I have going into uh, this next segment, because according to a recent survey by uh, done by a UK law firm, 35% of women had experienced at least one sexist workplace demand since the COVID-19 lockdown started in March. (laughs) We thought we were doing something about this, but apparently not. HR obviously hoped there would be a dramatic decline in the amount of workplace sexism. Uh but no. Instead, rather shocked to find that wait for it, 34% of women were actually asked to wear more makeup or work on their hair, while 27% were told maybe you could dress a little more sexy or provocatively on your Zoom calls. Are you kidding me right now? Shocking, shocking this is. Wanting to talk through exactly what this means from an employment rights perspective. Leah Moody is with us, partner at Zamfiru Law. Thank you for being with us, Leah. Oh, My pleasure, Jody. I wish it was on a different topic, but I'm happy to to chat with you. I'm in utter shock. I'm flabbergasted. Whatever you insert word here, it's seriously (laughs) mind-blowing that we are talking about this. Is this really happening?
7: Yeah, I mean you're the you're the mind blowing off emoji. I'm like the monkey covering their eyes emoji. I yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. unfortunately not so shocked. I'm just so dismayed that yet again this is still another conversation that we need to have about how it's not okay to sexualize female employees to attract clients. Like I don't understand how this is still something that needs to be heard, but apparently it is.
1: Okay, so if you're uh An employee who has your employer say, "You know, could you just fix your hair a little bit or or maybe wear a little bit more makeup? What can you do about it is it Is it okay for them to say that to you no
7: it's it's not and you know to and and let me just you know let's focus in on what the legal rights are here for a second, and then we can talk about yeah. a practical approach to it right okay. so you know if if you are being um, you know, isolated in some way or being told to do something that is unique and specific to your sex, right? If if none of the males at this company are being told to wear makeup or do their hair or look sexy, that is discrimination. And that is uh, that gives rise to a complaint under the BC Human Rights Code that you can bring and you can perhaps get paid for as a result of this request, right? So let's be very clear that that is not allowed it is illegal it is discrimination in british columbia practically speaking i know you know particularly in today's job market there are a lot of employees out there who are saying you know that's all well and good but you know if i bring forward a human rights code complaint what's going to happen to my job or yeah. you know what does that mean going forward i'm afraid of any kind of reprisal and you know first and foremost any kind of punishment for bringing a complaint like that just will give you more damages in the end, right? So an employer punishes you very, very much at their own peril. But I completely understand that concern. And so what I would recommend doing at a minimum is keeping track of of these kinds of events. So, you know, keeping writing an email to yourself so you have a date and a time stamp of this request being made of you. And, you know, if I were in that position, if my boss came to me and said something like that, I would probably respond by saying, can I get that request in writing? That sends Mm -hmm. a very, very clear signal that this is not okay. And, you know, are you going to, if you put this in writing, I'm kind of starting to put together a file against you. So in, in a bit of a, you know, perhaps coy way, Sends the employer a message that, you know, this is not okay, and I'm gonna start to kind of, you know, get my ducks in a row for a potential eventual complaint.
1: Is there any, where's the line here though, Leah? Like, is there anything that an employer can say with regard to an employee's workplace attire, even if it is work from home? Yeah,
7: so I don't think that there's any concern if an employer says to all of their employees, we need you to look professional on client calls over Zoom, right? Um, if mm-hmm. people are showing up wearing, you know, tie-dye shirts and, you know, their, their hair is all disheveled and this is like a client conference call for some sort of pitch, I think it's completely understandable and appropriate for an employer to say, you know, we need you to 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 look professional just as you would... Um, asking somebody to to look good for client meetings. But I think that where it rises to the level of of an illegal action is when you are, I mean, certainly when you are making it sexual. So if you're asking people to dress sexier in the workplace, but in any respect, if you are um, singling out A particular group, right? So if you're only making the request of your female employees to look good and professional, and you're allowing your male employees to show up in tie-dye shirts, then that's a problem. That's discrimination, even if the base request is technically appropriate. You can't discriminate between the sexes in that regard.
1: We're with Leah Moody, partner at Zampieri Law, and it's interesting because it peaks for me. I mean, having worked in um, the service industry and hospitality, you know, growing up, I was an Earl's girl, and I was told you're wearing a little black, <laughs> black dress, and then the servers, the guys, were wearing, you know, jeans and a and a white shirt, and and at the time that didn't seem odd to me, but fast forward to 2020, forward from 1987 right? It's yeah. changed significantly. The expectation you have to wear heels and he does not is no longer cool.
7: No, it's not. And, and nor should it be. I mean, right. I I work in environments like that myself. I completely understand where you're coming from. And, you know, I do think that there's a certain element of choice to be had too, right? If, if right, men if I and wear women want to... <laughs> absolutely, right? If, right? if you want to, you know, look good to, you know, because you think that that's going to result in better tips and all the power sure. to you. The problem arises when your employer is saying you, Jody, are required to wear heels and Mike over there can come to work looking like a slob because, you know, we don't want him to be sexy or we don't care if he's sexy. It's just about yeah. you as a woman.
1: So when it comes to the employee, as you said, like doing the can you send that to me in writing? Because as, as much as it is a bit of a tip, a tell of like, hey, I'm listening to you and that's not on. That might also put an employee in a pe- precar- precarious position, employment-wise, uh, without having the documentation. Is there a way that that we can... Is it screen caps? Is it, is it, I don't know, recording your boss saying something to you? Because sometimes employers can be a little, uh, well, overtly careful of not putting such things in writing.
7: Yeah, I mean, you would think that employers are, for the most part, careful not putting things in writing. You'd be astonished at the things I still do see in black and white, really? um, oh, but man. certainly, you know, screen cap text messages are, are perfect, and in that regard, yeah. you don't even need to ask for writing beyond that. If, if, you're, if your boss is sort of silly enough to make a request like that at all, and even sillier to put it in a text message, you just take that screen cap and you put it in your back pocket. Um, you know, but I do think that, that 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 tip is important. And I like I said, I completely understand the concern that it puts you in a bit of a precarious position. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's nothing else that you can really do except to start of sort of get your ducks in a row. Um, most file. employers yeah. aren't going to put it in writing. Right. If, if you're not prepared to bring the human rights code complaint anyway, at that point, they're not going to put it in writing. But you asking for it will probably tell them. That you're not okay with this, and then those are kind of requests, I would hope, would start to cease at that point.
1: Is there value in telling uh, coworkers or or people, uh, colleagues at, at at any level, just so you can sort of mark the moment? Is there value oh, in that absolutely. from a legal perspective? Okay.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I you know I think that as we've seen time and time again with sexual harassment of any kind, contemporaneous evidence is key, right? Which is why I was suggesting, you know, even if you don't want to speak to your employer about it, send yourself an email because then you have that date and timestamp, right? You can say, this is how I recorded this event when it happened. And that becomes a lot stronger. And certainly if you feel comfortable speaking to your coworkers, those are just potential witnesses down the line. And that can be really helpful as well.
1: And keeping that timeline. So if you're if you're pressed as to what day did that happen, where were you at the time, you go, Oh, you mean on this email that I sent myself five seconds after it happened? This is the time. This yeah. is the date. This is when it happened. It's very Exa- good. Imagine advice, how Leah. powerful that is, right? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So if somebody's listening right now and they're thinking, I think I do have a human rights violation case here or discrimi- discrimination case, how do they go about getting in touch?
7: Well, you can uh, you can email me, uh, you know, you can email uh you can get in touch with us via Facebook. Um, You know, my, uh, the website is uh, VancouverEmploymentLawyer.ca. We are happy to help. I personally am more than happy to help. This is, you know, as I'm sure you can appreciate, Jody, having lived with some level of this in the service industry before. I am very passionate about this topic. So I am happy to chat with anybody about what your options are.
1: No, you're right. It is important. Leah, always great to chat with you. Thank you for this. You too, Jody. Thanks for having me.